Thank you for joining us and tuning in. So what are some of the doctrines of the Baptists? Well, let's first talk about the most obvious ones, <laughs> baptism, and we'll see why they were called Baptists. So one of the defining characteristics of the Baptists, just like with the Anabaptists, is their view on baptism. Like I said before, they believe in this believer's baptism, which is the opposite of infant baptism meaning that individuals should be baptized only after making a personal confession of faith in Christ Jesus. So baptism is performed by immersion, symbolizing the believer's death to sin and a resurrection to a new life in Christ. Sounds great, right? Sounds good so far, but unfortunately it doesn't end there. So here's the problem. Here's the twist with the Baptist belief. They believe that baptism is an outward expression of an inward transformation. It, it symbolizes a believer's identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Great. But they say that baptism doesn't itself bring about the forgiveness of sin. So they don't believe you need to be baptized to make contact with the blood of Christ. So this is a major deviation for script, from Scripture. They believe baptism is not a scriptural thing. It's more of a church ordinance. Like, oh yeah, you join the Baptist church when you get baptized. They don't believe you receive salvation and join the kingdom of God when you get baptized. So see, that's, a, that's a major deal, a major big deal right there, which is a point of contention when you're studying with a Baptist. You want to ask them, oh, so you were baptized to join the Baptist church, right? Because they will tell you that they were not baptized to receive forgiveness of sins. So right there, that is a major, major deviation. For the Baptist, the forgiveness of sins is obtained solely through faith by them confessing Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they believe that just by confession, they have regeneration and the indwelling of the Spirit. So that is not what the Scriptures say. But they argue baptism cannot save them since it is a work of man. And the Scripture that they frequently cite, just like many others who are of the faith-only persuasion, as we've been studying, is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 where we read, you are saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourself, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. And see, unfortunately, they use this one verse to build their whole doctrine instead of the whole word of God, because you got to get the complete picture. Yes, absolutely, we're saved by grace through faith, but how does this grace come to us? Through the gospel, and how do we obey the gospel? We believe in our baptized. So you got to put the whole thing together, and this is what many of these Protestant reformers just didn't didn't do. They didn't put the whole scripture together. They just picked different verses and come to different convictions. We know from Acts 2.38 that repentance and baptism are tied together. They're not separated. You repent and are baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And then you receive the Holy Spirit. The scripture is so clear. And if you just read it, then all these man-made ideas just go away. But 
Baptists argue when you show them this verse, they'll argue, no, 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 no. We get baptized because of the forgiveness of sins, not for the forgiveness of sins. And so they mess around with the syntax there. But if you read it in the Greek, it doesn't really support their argument because in the Greek, it very clearly uses the Greek word ace, which is for or into or towards or to for the forgiveness of sins, not because of, which would be the Greek word epi. So it's very clear in the Greek, but we also have so many other passages that we can share with the willing Baptist. The Baptist was willing to, to hear what the scripture has to say, like 1 Peter 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this, I mean, very clearly says, now saves you. So you can't, uh, there's no way that you can mess that one up. It's very clear that baptism is necessary. One is not saved until one is baptized. Similarly, Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and, there's the conjunction, and is baptized. So we repent and are baptized. We believe and are baptized and we're saved. Baptism is not a part. It, it comes together. One is not saved until one believes and is baptized. Similarly, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So one is not a disciple until one is baptized. So nowhere in scripture do we read about baptism being an outward expression of an inward transformation. No, that's a man-made doctrine that is made up. In baptism, we join Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. In baptism, we obey the gospel, Romans 6, 3, and 4. In baptism, we're clothed with Christ, Galatians 3, 27. In, that, in baptism, we call on his name, Acts 22, 16. In baptism, we're made alive with Christ, Colossians 2, 12, and 13. And these are just a small smattering of scriptures on baptism that clearly tell us what we need to do and, and what this ordination from God is. So aside from believing that you are baptized to join their church, Baptists emphasize the direct relationship between God and the individual without the need for mediating priests, which is you know right along with what the scriptures say. There is no separation of clergy and laity. Jesus is the only mediator between God and men, and they also believe in the autonomy of the local church, something that the churches of Christ also believe. Scriptures teaches churches are typically independent, self-governing. We don't have a see or or some other hierarchical central government that dictates our doctrine or our policy. However, here's where the Baptists kind of dance around that line. They do believe in cooperative conventions. And they've allowed these cooperative conventions to shape their doctrinal beliefs as a whole. They say that they retain autonomy at the congregational level. But uh, when you study out the history of how these Baptist conventions have changed doctrine, uh, you will see that that is not necessarily true, that sometimes these conventions act like some sort of see and, uh, and do affect Baptist doctrine. And so we know that there is no, whenever you have a, a denomination or, or a church that allows another body to dictate the doctrine or to say that something has changed in the conviction, now again, we're running away 
from what the scriptures teach, because we know that the Bible doctrine is complete. It doesn't have to be updated. It doesn't have to change with the culture. Just like it says in Jude, he says here that the faith was once, was delivered to the saints once for all. There is no change. There is not, nothing that needs to be adjusted. Okay. If anything, we need to adjust to it. It itself doesn't need to be adjusted. And like Paul said in Galatians, to the Galatians in Galatians 1.8, if somebody preaches to you a gospel that's different from what you've already received, from what was preached to you, then a curse be on him. So this tells us that something was preached and anything that else that comes after that and, and it doesn't and it's not the same, then you should not consider it. It can be a curse. Likewise, as we've read before from Revelation, we know, as it says here in Revelation 22, 18 through 19, if anyone adds to the words of prophecy, God will add him to the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life. So think about this. If somebody is telling you that they need to revise their beliefs on occasion or anytime that there's a cultural shift, we need to reflect cultural values that are fleeting what are we talking about here are we are we saying then that we're christians are we saying that oh the bible needs to be updated or our doctrine is needs to be updated no that would mean that it is not from god then that it's from man so should conventions or any kind of seminar or or, or any kind of body really have authority to revise theology in the church well as we've read before from 2 Peter 1 and 3, we've already received everything we need for life and godliness in what was delivered in the first century, right? He's, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness to the knowledge of him who called us. So by knowing Jesus and by knowing his word, we are set. We, need, we do not need uh, a body of authority uh, outside of the church to tell us or outside the Bible to tell us that something has changed. As Jesus said in Mark 7, 13, traditions of men make void the word of God. So here are some scriptures that you can share to put into perspective this idea that conventions have the power. Having conventions dictate church doctrine is not a scriptural practice since doctrine is supposed to be protected by the elders and the evangelists of the congregation, not adopted from another body, not adopted certainly not from a hierarchy other than the church hierarchy. Uh, in Titus 1.9, Paul says, he, the elder, must hold to the faithful message as taught, meaning no changes, no revisions, no uh, keeping to cultural values so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Paul warned the church in Acts 20, 28, and 31. He said, the elders must be vigilant against false teachings. And he warns them there about fierce wolves that would come in among the flock. In other words, false teachers. Evangelists are also to gently instruct those who oppose the gospel, right? Who, who try to teach a gospel other than what has already been taught in hopes that God may grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. So that we, we can see clearly in all these scriptures that truth doesn't need revision. Truth doesn't need updating. We don't, our job here is not to reflect cultural values, but to reflect the values of God. And so when you do a study 
on the conventions of the Baptists, which there are very three famous ones that exist, like the Southern Baptist Convention, that's the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, established in 1845. And so the SBC, or the Southern Baptist Conversion, typically it's known for its conservative theology and its emphasis on missions. And so in the, in the late 20th century, like in the 70s and the 80s, a lot of movements within this convention tried to emphasize through leadership seminaries, mission boards, tried to emphasize biblical inerrancy and opposing liberal trends in the Baptist church. And even they have revised their statement of faith, which is called Baptist faith and message. So even though they say that they stick just with the Bible and they don't have creeds or, or a, a book that they follow, well, then what do we call this? Baptist faith and message. I mean, this is their statement of faith. And it has been revised three times since 1925. And so when you have a statement of faith that you need to keep revising, that is a big red flag right there. Have you ever wanted to read the Bible in plain English, a language that you can actually understand and follow? Well, there is a translation like that called God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nations Mission Society. This is the only translation of the Bible in English that follows a dynamic equivalent translation philosophy. It makes the Bible very easy to understand and it flows very naturally in the English language. You can follow along my podcast where I read to you from God's Word translation for one whole year. You can search for the podcast on Spotify or your favorite podcast reader. Search for God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nation Mission Society. You can also look it up under my name, Pedro Gelibert. The American Baptist Church, or the ABC, they are the oldest Baptist association in the United States, and it's very theological diverse. So all the Baptist churches that align with the American Baptist Church have a bit more liberalism in it. They're more involved in social justice issues. They, they reflect a broader theological and social perspective. Some regions and churches within the ABC, the American Baptist Church, have adopted affirming stances toward LGBTQ individuals. They support the ordination of LGBTQ and they support same-sex marriage. Other regions and congregations remain very conservative. So there, there's like this discord amongst this convention right now. And uh, some are, are fighting this out within their convention. And then you have the National Baptist Convention or the NBC. And this is one of the largest African-American religious organizations in the U.S., emphasizing both spiritual and social uplift. They were very influential during the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil, civil rights leaders were part of the National Baptist Convention, which was very proactive in addressing social and civil rights issues. So they uh, still remain very theologically conservative, emphasizing traditional Christian beliefs. And there are many other conventions that I'm not going to get into here uh, for a uh, lack of time. But as we can see, these conventions have had power to shape Baptist thought and doctrine 
through the centuries. And when you allowed an outside body like that to shape your, your theology or to tell you that you need to revise your statement of faith, right there, there is a big red flag. According to the scriptures, not so. We should not be doing that. So the Baptists are also very Bible-centric to see, and this is the discord, right? This is the spiritual dissonance. They say they are Bible-centric, and they look to the Bible for authority, and yet they have these other bodies dictating changes or, or revisions to their faith. So which one is it? If you're going to say you're Bible-centric, then you need to stick with God's Word and not have other bodies have more authority than what the Word of God says. Also, Many of the early Baptists historically are Calvinistic. So they adhere to the five points of Calvinism as articulated at the Synod of Dort in the 17th century. And we went over this when we studied Calvinism a few weeks ago. If you remember the five points of Calvinism, often remembered by the acronym TULIP, stand for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. So most of these are not biblically sound uh, theology. We had studied that this theology, uh, the only one that has a biblical leg to stand on, so-so is total depravity, but it even becomes problematic uh, at some points. So some Baptist groups like the Reformed Baptist fully embraced Calvinism, but others may accept it, some don't. So there's kind of like a mix. Traditionally, Baptists tend to be Calvinists, especially with the Reformed theology. They often refer as, as the new Calvinism within various evangelical movements within the Baptist church. So this has brought Calvinistic theology to the forefront of the Baptist life. Uh, so it is becoming more popular, even though not all Baptists are Calvinists. So let's move on to a group that came out of the Baptists, interestingly enough, and those are the Seventh-day Adventists. So I'll give you a little bit of a historical context, and we get into the doctrine and how to defend it with the scripture. So the Millerites, as they were known, <laughs> because they followed William Miller, so the Seventh-day Adventists are known as the Millerites. That's what they were called at first. And they were not a separate denomination, but rather a group of believers who just followed the teachings of this American Baptist preacher known as William Miller. So Miller, what, what made him stand out? Well, he predicted that the second coming of Jesus would occur between 1843 and 1844. How many times have we heard evangelical preachers or preachers of some denominations say, that Jesus is going to come, that Jehovah Witnesses did this too. They uh, predicted that Jesus would come at some point in time. I remember in the recent past, like in the early 90s, there was this famous evangelical preacher that predicted Jesus would come towards the end, uh, towards the beginning of the millennium or towards the, the end of the previous millennium. And of course, these things don't happen. And for Miller, when his prediction didn't come true, uh, this period was known as the Great Disappointment. <laughs> and so in the aftermath of the Great Disappointment, a lot of Millerite groups were trying to say, hey, what happened here? And they, instead of saying, we followed a false prophet and abandoning the whole movement, they sought to understand, well, what happened? Let's reevaluate. And they still kept together. I mean, 
come on, you know, the Old Testament clearly teaches that if a prophet's prophecy didn't come true, then he's a false prophet. You shouldn't be following anything that he says. But some people, you know, they just don't think. Uh, they don't believe the Bible, man. And when you don't believe the Bible, you'll believe any fool that tells you a story. And we have to make sure that we're in the scripture, not to get thrown off track by anybody. Anyway, these uh, groups began to emphasize the observance of the seventh day of the Sabbath. And so this group coalesced and formally, <coughs> excuse me, formally organized as the Seventh-day Adventist Church or the SDA Church, as their acronym is, uh, is also called, in 1863. So they believed in the imminent second coming of Jesus. So they didn't let go of this idea yet. Uh, but a prominent woman, a prominent figure in the movement, came out, Ellen G. White, and she played a very significant role in the latter formation of the SDA church. Her writings are actually considered as inspired counsel by the church. They say that they're not equivalent to the Bible, but let me tell you, they follow her teachings just uh, even more so than the Bible, because when you show the Seventh-day Adventists what the scriptures say, they will not change their mind, meaning, okay, they think Ellen G. White is more important and carries more weight than the Bible. That's really how you test that. So they'll say, oh, no, 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 she's not inspired. She just, she's just an inspired counsel. But if you end up following her more than the Bible, then you're not being true to what you're saying. So Ellen G. White was a co-founder of the SDA church and is considered to be her, the first prophetess of the church. And she has a profound influence, playing a central role in shaping the doctrines, the practices, and everything about the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Her visions, I mean, she started having visions in her teenage years. Ah, she reported having visions from God that provided guidance and instruction for the Adventist believers. And we already talked about, I share with you some scriptures in previous lessons about People who, who reportedly say they have visions. Colossians chapter 2 has a lot to say about that, right? They are disconnected from the head. People who claim to have visions, especially saying things that are not in accordance with the gospel. Didn't we just read Galatians 1, 8 and 9? You know, if somebody tells you something other than what you've already learned, let them be accursed. So if people knew their Bible right away, they wouldn't be following this person. But yeah, you know, she had visions and over her lifetime, she claimed to have had 2000 visions and dreams where God spoke to her. And so apparently she's a very prolific writer. She published more than 100,000 pages of books, articles, letters, some of her most well-known books, of course, the SDA people they read them all the steps to christ the desire of the ages a five volume tome titled the conflict of the ages and so on and so forth so her writings cover a broad range of topics theology education health prophecy so her visions and writings are instrumental in the formation of the sda pretty much the sda as we know it today is is founded on all on on ellen g white and interestingly uh, in her visions she talks about education and health initiatives 
So they established numerous schools, colleges, and health institutions as well. So they emphasize health. She calls it the health message and uh, advocates for vegetarianism. A lot of SDA are vegetarians and they also abstain from the unclean foods in Leviticus 11 as well because they, they partly follow some of the Old Testament and partly don't. They divide the Old Testament in a funny way, which is not how the scriptures do it. So Ellen G. White passed away in 1915, but her influence still remains strong. And the church, the Seventh-day Adventists, will tell you, oh, she's just a lesser light pointing to the greater light of the Bible. But you know what? At the end of the day, they think that she is the greater light because they don't surrender to what the scriptures teach. So before we get to some of these doctrinal things that they teach and how to fight them, let me introduce you to some other key leaders in the Seventh-day Adventist movement. We have James White. He was Ellen G. White's husband. He was a preacher, a writer, an organizer. So he consolidated a lot of these Adventist groups into a unified movement. We have Joseph Bates. He's actually the one credited with introducing the Seventh-day Sabbath observance. He was a retired sea captain and became a Millerite preacher. And he wrote a book titled The Seventh-day Sabbath. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. This ensures I will continue producing authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me. Thank you and have a blessed day. We have J.N. Andrews, a scholar and a missionary. He was the first official Seventh-day Adventist missionary sent overseas. And we have Hiram Edson. After the great disappointment in 1844, he was the one who had a vision in a cornfield that led to the development of the Adventist understanding of the heavenly sanctuary and the investigative judgment of Jesus, which we're going to talk about in a little bit what that is, because that's one of their big doctrines. So let's examine these doctrines. Let's learn how to dispute SDA beliefs. So let's start with that one, the investigative judgment. I bet you probably never heard about that unless you recently talked with the son of the Adventists. So anyway, they proposed that Jesus entered the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary in 1844 to begin a process known as the investigative judgment. This is all pure conjecture. I mean, there is no biblical evidence for any of this at all. If anything, according to the book of Hebrews, Jesus entered the inner sanctuary right after his sacrifice on the cross. I mean, in Hebrews 10, 12, we read about that. After offering one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And how do we know that the right hand of God means the holy of holies? Well, let's keep reading. Mark 16, 19 says the Lord was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 6, 19 says Jesus entered the inner place behind the curtain as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. And that's who he is. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus' work right now is that of being 
our intercessor, the high priest ministering before the Holy of Holies at the right hand of God. So Jesus didn't enter the right hand of God in 1844. He entered the right hand of God in 33 AD, following his resurrection and his ascension. We've got biblical proof for that. Next, Ellen G. White's authority. The SDA church claims the Bible is its only creed, but Ellen G. White's writings and visions and prophecy, they hold a very special authoritative status. And we know from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that only Scripture has the authority of God. Only Scripture is breathed out by God. Only Scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And if we try to bring something other than the gospel that has already been preached, let it be a curse. So, yes, Ellen G. White is a curse. You know, she does not follow. She pretends to know or to teach something apart from that. Not only is she a false prophetess, just like Arthur Miller was, who began the movement. And right there, that should be the biggest red flag of all. His prophecy didn't come through. So this SDA movement is of demonic teaching. And of course, you know, you don't want to come out and say that to uh, Seventh-day Adventists right out of the box. But eventually that should be the conclusion, right? After uh, all these scriptures, you know, you gently want to kind of see if they come around and say, hey, what are you going to believe, this scripture? Or are you going to believe this person who not only had false prophecies, but was following a false movement? Which, which one is it, right? So the dietary restrictions, let's speak about that, because the SDA church promotes a vegetarian diet. There's nothing wrong with being vegetarian, right? Unless you force it on people. You know, don't force me to be a vegetarian, man. I love to eat my pork and my beef. I'm not going to be a vegetarian. And the scriptures talk about that if somebody doesn't want to eat a certain food, they certainly can make up their mind to do that for the Lord. But it's not a doctrinal thing. Not only is it not a doctrinal thing, but 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5 teaches us that everything created by God is good. There is nothing unclean anymore. See, the SDA church advocates that they can't eat certain unclean foods that are described in Leviticus 11. But we already know that Jesus declared all foods clean. And Paul repeats that here in 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. And Paul, within those verses, says only doctrines of demons advocate prohibition of food. So you tell me if somebody is telling you that you can't eat something Right, right away, that's a red flag. That's a doctrine of demons. The only thing that we need to abstain from is blood and the meat of strangled animals, like Acts 15, 20 says. Also, Colossians 2, 16, 17 is a, is a big scripture that I like to use with the Seventh-day Adventists because this one speaks very clearly as to the role of these feasts and of, even of the Sabbath, right? It says, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. It talks about these religious festivals in the Old Testament. Verse 17 clearly says, these are a shadow of what was to come. A shadow. The reality, the substance is Christ. So if somebody is harping on, oh, I need to observe the Sabbath or I can't eat these foods or I have to celebrate this thing. It says, look, that's all a shadow. Are you celebrating a shadow or do you want to celebrate the reality, which is Christ? Which one is it? Again, you're presenting a choice. 
So this is a really good passage to share with Seventh-day Adventists and talk about. It talks about all these matters of the law as being a shadow of the reality who is Christ Jesus. And you can use the same scripture to speak against the Sabbath observance because they emphasize that Saturday is the true Sabbath. And they'll tell people like you and I that's, that we're uh, not worshiping the right way and that God doesn't approve of us meeting on a Sunday on the first day of the week because the Bible says it's Saturday. And again, we run into problems because we already shown from Colossians 2.16 that it says clearly, don't let anyone judge you when it comes to a Sabbath day, because that is a shadow. So boom, that should that should end the argument right there. But just in case it doesn't uh, and say, hey, you want to worship on a Saturday? You know what? That's your prerogative because Romans 14, 5 and 6 says, if one person judges one day to be more important than another, hey, that's good to you. You can be fully convinced of that. That's no problem. You observe that day. You do it to honor the Lord. But you cannot impose that observance on anyone else because then at that point you're making your own doctrine. It's a tradition of man at that point. Same goes for eating. Hey, you, you don't want to eat a certain food or, or eat a certain food and you do it for the Lord. But you can't impose that on others. It's very clearly said there in Romans 14. Each person has to make a decision. It's okay if you want to worship on the Saturday or say that the Saturday is a special day, but you do so on your own, fully convinced in your own mind, by faith. You can't tell someone else that they're sinning because the Bible doesn't say that at all. So these are some scriptures, again, to bring up to a Seventh-day Adventist. Adventists also believe in annihilationism. What is that? Well, the SDA church teaches that all wicked people will be completely destroyed. In other words, that they're not going to go to hell. Hell doesn't exist. They're just going to be annihilated. There is no eternal torment. And of course, this is problematic. <laughs> Some in the Church of Christ have advocated this too, by the way. And uh, we know that that is not in keeping with Scripture. This view clashes with many passages like first of all Matthew 25 46 where Jesus clearly says in the parable of the sheep and the goats at the very end he makes the statement they will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life so equally for the wicked and for the righteous there's an eternal consequence there is no destruction there is no annihilation, there is a continuation of both the righteous and the wicked, which is what we see also repeated in Revelation 20.10, where we read the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is this torment is qualified by the phrase forever and ever, meaning it doesn't end meaning, eternal meaning. There is no annihilation. Yes, there is eternal torment. There is eternal suffering. That's one of the things that we need to make sure people understand because that's where the urgency of the gospel lies and for people avoiding this place. SDA also believes that the soul is not naturally immortal, that it only gains immortality through Christ. So they believe that people who are not in Christ 
They're like the animals that once they die, that's it. The soul just disappears. Again, the annihilationism, right? And that we only gain mortality, immortality through Christ. But the Bible does not teach that at all. Consider the following passages. 1 John 5, 28 through 29. Jesus says, don't be amazed at this because the time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. So notice how Jesus pretty much qualifies everybody as either uh, the righteous or the wicked, as we've seen before. And there's life after death for both the resurrection of the condemnation and a resurrection of life. So it seems that the soul is immortal. It's not just through Christ that you gain immortality. You have an immortal soul that is going to suffer consequences after this life, which is why the gospel is so urgent. We can also read to them Acts 24, 15, where Paul himself says, I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. Very clearly stated there, both the righteous and the unrighteous. That's all peoples. So all peoples will be raised from the dead. So, and again, if we read Revelation 20, this passage, it, it's very descriptive about how everybody is going to be raised from the dead. Everybody is going to come out. The sea is going to give up the dead. The death in Hades are going to give up the dead. And in, in other words, everybody who has died is going to come up and it's going to be judged. Not just those who are Christians, but everybody. And that cannot be so clearly stated as in these scriptures that I just shared with you. Thank you so much for your attention. God bless you and have a great rest of the week. Cause it won't be a Baptist that's sitting on the throne. A Presbyterian or a Methodist that's calling us home. And it won't be a charismatic that plays a trumpet too. Because he's coming back real soon oh, It won't be old Buddha That's sitting on the throne And it won't be old Mohammed That's called